Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to see everyone. If you have a Bible with you, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point it to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I get to be one of the pastors here, and we're starting a new series this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's in the Old Testament of your Bible. So kind of find the middle and then take a right, and you'll find the book of Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's one in a chair in front of you somewhere, and uh, go ahead and take that one out. You'll find Ecclesiastes on page 553. 553. We're going to read verse 1 all the way down to verse 11, and then we're going to pray and we'll get to work as the parents are funneling back in from dropping their kids off at uh, Cornerstone Kids and Pebbles and Nursery. And I want to say thank you again to those of you who already do serve in the Cornerstone Kids Ministry and Pebbles Ministry and the Nursery Ministry. I want you to understand that is a service not just to the children, but it is a service to all of the parents here so that we can sit here and um, hear God's Word and be with our family as that happens. And so thank you very much for those of you who are, are serving. And if you get a chance, whoever is serving in those rooms today, please take a moment and thank them uh, for their, their selflessness. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, down to verse 11. This is the Word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray together. Father, as the psalmist said, would you deal bountifully with us this morning so that we may heed your words and live. Lord, would you enable us, your people, to understand your word. Send your Holy Spirit, we ask, 
Fill us. Give us understanding. Cause the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. So that we would know what it is the Spirit is saying to the churches. Help us understand and heed your word. For the glory of your Son. Amen. Well, I'm not the first person to read the book of Ecclesiastes and find similarities in its prose to the words of another modern poet. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? (laughs) Caught in a landslide. Escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy. I need no sympathy because I'm easy come, easy go. A little high, a little low. Any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. To me. (laughs) You're welcome. Let's pray. Um, Freddie Mercury's lyrics in the song Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, they, they capture something that is, I think, familiar to all of us. Some days come and some days go. There are good days. There are bad days. Sometimes we're high on life. Sometimes we're a little low on life. There's winds that come and change things. And what does it really matter? Is there meaning in any of it? Freddie says no. Some of us are going to read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's going to be frustrating for us, because some of us are irrepressible optimists, always looking at the bright side of life. When it rains, you're excited to pull out the umbrella and the galoshes. When you blow a tire on the side of the road, you consider that an adventure. I love that about you. You remind me of my favorite character in the Pixar film, Up, the character Doug. He summarizes the way you look at life in the line, I have just met you and I love you. (laughs) Doug is a dog, by the way. For the optimists who read this book, there are going to be things that you see here and they're going to be jarring for you. At times you're going to feel like, is this the Bible for real? This is the Bible saying this? And I hear you. So for the optimist in the room, what you're going to need to do is lean into this book. This book is going to put you face to face with parts of the life under the sun that is ugly, There's no shiny veneer in the book of Ecclesiastes. It goes right to the complexity and the contradictions and the frustrations and the seeming randomness of life under the sun. And you're meant to feel the tension. Yes, of course, there is beauty in the world. But there's also some parts of the world which are just ugly And so your brothers and sisters, they need your optimism. 
Your optimism is a gift from God to his church. But just understand that your encouragement of others will be more effective when it's honest. And this book will enable you to weep with those who weep as well as rejoice with those who rejoice. But for others, reading the book of Ecclesiastes is a bit like reading your own Facebook feed. You're not dug from up. You're more inclined to say, I have just met you and I didn't want to. Eeyore is your spirit animal. There are times you're going to read this book and you're going to be like, see, I've been saying that for years. That's how life really is. And like the optimist, you're going to need to lean into this book because life under the sun is hard and much of it does seem meaningless. I want you to know that Ecclesiastes agrees with you on that point. But then Ecclesiastes also says, go have a nice sandwich. Enjoy life. Take your wife out to dinner. Go outside. Take your kids to the park. Have fun. Enjoy the life God has given. Let this book, my dear pessimistic friends, equip you to rejoice with those who rejoice as well as growl with those who growl. We all need the book of Ecclesiastes. There's much to learn from this book. But in order to learn, we need to know how to read this book. The Bible is a collection. It's a library of 66 different books. And there's a wide array of various kinds of literature, different genres. There's narrative genre, there's poetry, there's letters, gospels. Ecclesiastes falls under the wisdom literature, along with Job and Proverbs. Wisdom literature considers the morality and ethics of life. And in this genre, you can say things that, taken by themselves, are untrue. And they're meant to be because they're incomplete. And you're not meant to take parts of this book by itself. You're meant to read it as a whole. And so there are things in this book that are just going to make you flinch. But that's good. That will keep us from making simplistic, trite formulas on life. So the author will point to exceptions. And hold us in that tension. For example, some people that we know eat well. They stay active. They live a good life. They even use essential oils. And then they die in their 60s. But other people that we know smoke like a chimney, eat only bacon, and live into their 90s. Some people save for retirement, and retire very well. But other people save for retirement, and then 2008 comes along and wipes it out. That's life under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes. 
It's meant to hold us there in that tension so that we feel the frustration of this world that doesn't work like we expect it to work, where people don't do what we expect them to do. We live in a world that's filled with greed and political corruption and hurricanes and wildfires and the Pittsburgh Steelers. There are things that just don't work the way they're supposed to. So this book serves to lift our chins, to look up to God, where we find meaning in the seeming meaninglessness of life under the sun. And the opening passage, which we have just read, is a summary of the main issue of this book. So here's the main idea this morning. You can see this on the back side of your worship guide. The main idea, without God, there is no meaning to our toil. Without God, there is no meaning to our toil. Or for my irrepressibly optimistic friends, with God, there is meaning to our toil. Verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now you need to know there are two voices in this book. Two voices. One is the voice of the author, of Ecclesiastes. And the other is a man called Koaleth. In Hebrew, Koaleth. Your Bible will likely translate the word Koaleth as preacher or teacher. Literally, it means collector. Preacher, Koaleth, is not the author. The author is someone else who is teaching his son the wisdom of of the preacher. So the author opens the book here in chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, and then closes the book in chapter 12, addressing his son. Most of the book is the author giving voice to the preacher and the preacher's teaching, the preacher's experience, recounting his teaching and giving the lessons of his teaching on life to his son. So who is the preacher? Who is Koaleth? Well, the answer is we don't know for sure. There are good internal evidences to say that it was probably King Solomon. He was the only king who ruled over a unified Israel in Jerusalem. And there are certain elements of his life that we'll learn as we go on that can really only be true of of King Solomon. So I think it was probably King Solomon. And so the author is taking this book and teaching the wisdom of the preacher to his son and writing it down and gathering it into the canon of Scripture. So the Holy Spirit felt that it was necessary and good for us, beneficial for us, to know the teaching of the preacher. And so I think that you, you would agree with that as we go along in this series. Lord willing, we're going to be about 13 weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I would recommend and encourage you to add Ecclesiastes to your regular Bible reading this fall. Meditate on the passages, read them with your family, talk about them to one another. Stand with the author, in the tension of this book and let it pull on the longing of your heart. 
Let it draw you toward a world that has meaning. To, to a world without the frustration and tension. Let it cause you to long for the world to come. The world that will come when Jesus does. So the author summarizes the message of this book in verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So that phrase is going to appear over and over again. In fact, that word vanity appears 39 times in 12 chapters. And in order to understand the overall push of this book, you're going to have to understand that word that's translated as vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel, which is a bit difficult to translate into English. Just think of a mist or a vapor or like your breath when you step out into the cold. Something fleeting, elusive. In the NIV Bible, it's translated as meaningless. In the Christian Standard Bible, it's translated as absolute futility. Think of a thick fog. Not very long ago, a few days ago, we, we had a really thick fog in the morning. And, and fog is interesting because it looks solid, but sometimes it's so thick that you can't even see through it. But have you ever tried to grab a hold of the fog? You can't. It just passes through your hands. That's what the word hevel means. Vanity means. The preacher is saying that life is like that. It's concrete. It's real. It has substance. But the meaning of it is like grabbing a hold of fog. You can't hold on to it. And so he says, everything's like that. Hevel of hevels, all is hevel. Now, the preacher is not saying that life has no meaning. He's saying that meaning is hard to find. Now, you understand that when he says all is meaningless, that statement, all is meaningless, means something. So he's saying that life is like a fog, a vapor, it's brief like your breath in a cold morning. Well, the Apostle James says the same thing. He says, what is your life? You are mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. This is kind of like what we mean when we say time flies. But we know it doesn't really. There are 24 hours today. There's going to be 24 hours tomorrow. There's 60 minutes in this hour. There's going to be 60 minutes in the next. Time doesn't move. It doesn't fly. Those of you who have young children, you've probably heard someone, an empty nester, say to you at some point, don't blink, they'll be gone. What do they mean by that? They mean that our experience of time is funny. You see, in the moment, time feels like it's just normal. It's just like 60 seconds is a minute. But when we look back on time, it feels like it was so fast. The preacher's message is that life under the sun is like that. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's right there in front of you, but yet when you look back, it's just, it's just so quick and gone. Everything in life is short-lived. So the preacher looks at this and he asks, what is gained then? What is the gain in verse 3? 
What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That word gain is interesting. It only appears in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It comes from a verb which means to be left over or to remain. So when you've worked all month long and you've paid the bills, what's left over from all of your toil? Where is the gain? Where is the profit from your toil under the sun? So then the preacher points to the endless cycles of society in verse 4. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Generation goes, a generation comes. I'm old enough now to have outgrown the feeling of the uniqueness of my generation. When I was younger, it was cool to rail against previous generations for having sold out, not understanding the real issues of the day. And now I'm old enough that millennials are accusing my generation of selling out and not understanding the issues of the day. It turns out the boomer generation that I railed against spent the decade of the 60s railing against the World War II generation for selling out and not knowing the issues of the day. I suppose it's been like this since the beginning. I envision George Washington's children being like, you don't get it, Dad. The American Revolution was such a sellout. Many of you are millennials, and I love the millennial generation, but I think it's helpful for millennials to remember all those little kids that we just sent back to kids' church, someday they're going to come back and they're going to say, you don't get it, Dad. You don't understand, Mom, the issues of the day. Generation goes, generation comes. The earth remains forever. So whatever the entree of this generation's contribution to society, it's best to order a slice of humble pie for dessert. Of course, it's right to stand with the issues of the day. But before we shoot off with accusations on society from 50 years ago, it's best to ask, what issues will they accuse us of 50 years from now? We're standing in a fog. What do we not see? In verse 5 through 7, the preacher turns to the endless cycles of nature to make his point. He says, the sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on his circuits, the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The sun rises, the sun goes down. And hastens, literally runs exhausted, back to the place where it came. Sun is like a cross-country runner, running exhausted, back to the place where it started running. What does the sun gain by running? The same as cross-country runners gain from running. Nothing! Nothing at all! I'm kidding, of course. But have you ever thought about how weird it is that people run for pleasure? 
I mean, humans have been running for a really long time, but it's always been to chase food or to be chased because you are food. But now we run for pleasure. That's just weird to me. So from our perspective down here on earth, we look at the sun and it spends every day doing the very same thing. Rising the east, heading to the west. Round and round it goes. What does it gain? The wind is the same thing. It goes around and around on its circuits, gaining what? The sky rains, the rivers fill, they dump into the ocean, and the ocean is never full because the water evaporates and fills the clouds, and then it pours out on the land and fills the rivers, and they go back to the ocean. And it just repeats itself ad nauseum. You know what I'm saying, don't you? you? You feel what Ecclesiastes is teaching, don't you? You feel this every time you walk into the kitchen and the, and the sink is full of dirty dishes. And, and then you roll up your sleeves and you do the dishes and then you go sit down and you come back a few hours later and it's full again. There are some of us who avoid the laundry room in our house believing that if we just ignore dirty laundry, it'll just go away. We feel the frustration of the endless cycles of life under the sun. And so the preacher sums it up in verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It seems that some of us have adopted verse 8 as a life verse. All things are full of weariness. Everything makes me tired. The preacher says he could go on and on. But he says, what's the point? What more is there for me to say? Eyes are never satisfied with seeing. Ears never reach their limit. No one has ever gone halfway through a movie and then your eyes and ears just shut off because they reached their limit for the day. You'd be like, I could pause it, but I can't see the remote. So seasons come and seasons go. Generations come and generations go and nothing has changed. And then the preacher wraps up his point in verse 9 through 11. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which someone can say, that's new? Never seen that before? No, it's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. All of human history is the same. Nothing's changed. It's all been done before. I chuckled when I read Pastor Alistair Begg's thoughts on this in reply to someone saying, well, we put a man on the moon, didn't we? That's new. And Pastor Begg says, well, yeah, but there's nothing for him to do there except look at the earth, which is what we've been doing for centuries, looking at the earth. Nothing is new. Well, what about the iPhone? What about the internet? That's new. It's all been done before. People have been inter-networking together since the beginning of time. It's just that today we do it faster and with more cats 
If anything, that's the opposite of progress. <laughs> I understand what he means by vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what do we make of all this? What do we make of the first 11 verses of this strange book in your Bible? Well, remember, this book is meant to cause us to lift up our chin and to look through the meaninglessness of this life and see God and there find meaning. Is there meaning in toil under the sun? Freddie Mercury says no. But Jesus Christ says something different. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. That's in the New Testament, Luke chapter 12. If you're in one of the chair Bibles, that's page 871. While you're turning there, those of you who've um, had the experience of watching the movie Groundhog Day, you'll remember there's a scene in that movie where Bill Murray's character sits down at a bar and he asks, what would you do if you were stuck in one place where every day was the same and nothing you did mattered? And the guy next to him says, well, yeah, that sums it up for me. <laughs> Why is that sad? Why does that bother us? Why would it be frustrating if you were stuck in one place and, and every day was the same and nothing you did mattered? Why is redundancy annoying? We look at the patterns of life as Ecclesiastes has pointed out. This is normal. The sun does everything it has already done and will continue to do for as long as you live. So why does it bother you to be the same? It seems to me that it doesn't bother the animals. They do the same thing every day. I've never seen a squirrel running around me like, what's the point? Animals don't have existential crises. Why do we? Could it be that God made us to need meaning in life? Could it be that the source of meaning, the source of all things is God and that the meaninglessness of life and the redundancy that's so frustrating is meant to cause us to look to Him to find meaning? The first man and the first woman sought meaning outside of God. They believed that they could find meaning on their own, apart from his commandments. And they rebelled against his commandments. Their rebellion was called sin. And their sin did not give them meaning. Their sin took their meaning away. With Ecclesiastes still kind of bouncing around in your mind, listen to what the Lord said to Adam after he sinned. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Does that sound like Ecclesiastes 1? We all feel that frustration because we have all sinned in the same way that Adam sinned. We've sought meaning outside of God. We have turned our work, which is a good thing, into toil. And the more we search for meaning in material things, the more frustrated we'll be. On some level, I think we all know that to be true. We all know that more money won't make us happier. A bigger house just means a bigger lawn. But we all think that we can beat the system. And so we work more hours, hopelessly believing that we'll find meaning in the money, find meaning in a better job, find meaning in a better spouse. But without God... All that toil is meaningless. And it will remain meaningless as long as we seek meaning in material things. And it is the kind mercy of God to frustrate us in that pursuit. Ecclesiastes is teaching us that without God, toiling for material things cannot bring us the meaning we're looking for. People can't. Things can't. They weren't meant to. If you try to put the weight on those things, it will break them. We've all seen it go down like that. One person makes another person the meaning of their life and destroys the relationship. I get nervous whenever I hear couples in love say things like, you're the light of my life. You're everything to me. You're my highest joy. That's danger. No one is supposed to fill that position in your life. No one but Jesus alone. And as long as you try and put that kind of weight on another person, it will break that relationship. You will use them and you will destroy them. There's only one person who's capable of carrying the weight of being the light of your life and everything to you. And that's the point. In the search for meaning in this toil, we are meant to find Jesus. Which is exactly what the Lord is teaching in Luke 12. Take a look at verse 15. Jesus said to the crowd, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. 
You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Ecclesiastes 1.3. What is the gain from all the toil under the sun? And then verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus' message is clear. We gain nothing by toiling without God. If we store up treasures here on the earth, it will do us no good. What matters is being rich, not in this age, but rich toward God. That is where meaning is found. Riches toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Does it mean doing lots of good deeds? No one is capable of doing enough good deeds to become rich toward God. No one except Jesus. And the Bible tells us that by calling on the Lord Jesus Christ, His riches are accredited to us by faith. The good news is that meaning in this world is not really a wild goose chase without a goose. Meaning came to us. Jesus Christ left the riches of heaven. He became poor for our sake to pour out His riches on all who believe. He laid down His life on a cross. And by so doing, Jesus gave life meaning. So all who are trusting in Christ and living for His sake, everything has meaning. I want to say that again. For those who are trusting in Christ and living for His sake, everything has meaning. Every ounce of a Christian's toil in life under the sun matters. Did you know Jesus taught that even if you give someone a glass of cold water in His name, it carries eternal significance? A glass of cold water? Everything has meaning. Here's the promise given to you. If you are a Christian, if you have confessed your sins before the Lord and turned from sin and trusted in Christ, here's the promise the Bible gives to you and your toil. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Vanity of vanities is only true of those who are living their life under the sun without God. But because of Jesus, those who are in Him, depending on Him, nothing is vain, nothing is meaningless. And like Jesus, 
when you lay down your life for the sake of the gospel, God sees to it that everything you do matters eternally. So here's the end of the matter. Trust Christ. Do the dishes. Fold the laundry. Show up to work early tomorrow. Eat good food today. Take your wife on a date. Take a walk in the park. Go hunting on Saturday. Even run if you are so inclined. Spend yourself serving the purposes of God. Join a discipleship group. Do a Bible study with a friend. Take a sister out for coffee. Send encouraging text messages to someone who's been down. Invite your neighbors to your home. Enjoy life. Because if you are in Christ, everything you do for His sake matters eternally. In your toil this week, see Jesus. Feel Jesus. He's your meaning. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Without God, there is no meaning to toil under the sun. But with God, there is meaning in all your toil because of the sun. Amen? Please stand for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we take a moment reflecting on the passage that we've just read. And as God has revealed Himself to us, we realize that we've not lived up to the standards that we ought to, the ones that have been set forth in this passage. And so we go to the Lord together corporately in prayer, and we confess our sins, and we ask the Lord to forgive us, and we ask for His grace to help us to serve Him more faithfully. So would you do that with me this morning? Let's pray. God in heaven and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the author of life and creator, the source of all things, the source of meaning, we thank you this morning for your great kindness to us. We thank you for enabling us to see that even in the frustrations of this life, the monotony and endless cycles of life are meant by you to bring us to you. And we recognize, Lord, that we have no reason to give you to do this kindness for us. That if anything, we have spurned your advances. We have spurned your love. We have turned from you. And yet in your mercy and in your kindness, you keep pursuing us. Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the message of this book. Thank you for the longing that you have built into us to seek meaning. And we ask you this morning that you would continue to use this book, empowered by your Holy Spirit, to draw us to your Son, where we would find meaning. Father, we confess that we have often sought meaning outside of you. 
We look to material things and to people to make us feel safe, to make us feel loved, to make us feel accepted. But Father, we realize this is a wild goose chase, a lot of goose. We've grasped for meaning from the fog of life and we've come up empty-handed. Please forgive us. Forgive us for neglecting the many various ways that you've been showing us this for years. Forgive us for trying to quench that thirst for meaning with silly things like food, sex, video games. Enable us to turn from these sins and trust in Jesus. Help us to find our true satisfaction, our highest delight. In Jesus alone. And for all of us, Lord, I ask of you this kindness. That you would cause our hearts to be restless until they find their rest in Jesus. Will you keep us totally dissatisfied until Jesus is our all? Grant to us wisdom to walk these things out. And to do these things for your sake, for the glory of your Son, in whose name we ask these things.